You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, Doug and Greg here with Lanyap Podcast. It is uh, the 19th of January, and uh, the year 2024, at least in markets, is getting off to a choppy start. I think we're basically flat across the board in equities, uh, just the general market return. And then the bond market has really uh, sold off, meaning interest rates have come up to start the year, uh, which is not surprising. I think the at the beginning of this year, uh, the market was pricing in something like six or seven uh, rate cuts uh, for 2024, and uh, that is getting repriced uh, because you know if you're looking at this from – uh, the glass half full perspective. The economy is a lot, just a lot more resilient uh, than anticipated. And if uh, inflation is coming down, um, or at least stabilizing, and uh, and there's no really need to cut rates, I think the Federal Reserve is just going to take this a lot slower than uh, cutting rates and, and risking uh, a reignition of inflation. And so. I uh, want to start with that. I mean, it, we're at a, a 10-year treasury approaching 4.2%. I think uh, a lot of people specifically that have debt, uh, whether in the real estate world or in, in businesses, um, would would hope for lower interest rates. But uh, at least from what the market is telling us for the first three weeks of this year, it's not uh, happening as quickly as anticipated. One of the predictions you made at the beginning of the year, Doug, was that stock prices and bond prices wouldn't wouldn't move in tandem. And what, what basically what's happened over the last couple of years is that stock prices have gone down and yields have gone up, basically. So essentially, bond prices have gone down with stock prices. Um, that same sort of uh, your prediction was that that there would be normality to that particular dynamic, meaning that bonds would be a hedge for stocks, and when stocks would go down. Um, yields would also go down, and so bond prices would go up. But that really hasn't that isn't really what has occurred so far in 2024 as well. Too, we've had that the return to that tradition, not the traditional, but the most more recent um, correlation between stocks and bonds. Um, so that's another interesting dynamic. I agree with you that the the Fed is the market's probably pricing, and the Fed is going to be slowing down. Consumer sentiment came out today. And if you recall, if you guys have been listening to us for a while now, we're getting close to 100 episodes, which, which is crazy, which is and we've been doing this on a weekly basis. So that indicates we've been doing it for a couple of years now. But at one point in time, we were talking about a recession in vibes, meaning the essentially people were in a bad mood. And that was reflected in the data. And every month, the, the University of Michigan does a consumer sentiment survey. Um, and right now that we're in uh, what uh, some prognosticators are calling a vibe expansion. Um, the University of Michigan's uh, latest survey data uh, was up 13% in January, and it was at the highest level since J- July of 2021. So basically, people are feeling good, spending more, um, and that's Four, showing. 401ks are at an all-time high. Uh, I mean, the other thing, too, is which I think is just completely underappreciated. Um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week about how asset managers are salivating over $9 trillion in money markets and CDs, which is just an astronomical number. And the idea, the idea that they're salivating is as soon as rates come down, um, their hope is that that money goes from CDs and uh, money markets to other you know, products, whether it's stocks, bonds, whatever. Um, and so uh, 
the the other way to think about this is from the sentiment perspective. Somebody that has a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars in their uh, you know savings account or money market account at a bank is now earning a pretty decent uh, rate of return on that, and so the wealth effect of uh, higher uh, 401k balances, inflation coming down. Uh, this is uh, you know, debt being fixed for a long time. This is Lizanne Saunders uh, data from Redfin uh, from the 16th of January. Uh, Redfin shows that 88.5% of U.S. homeowners with mortgages have an interest rate below 6%, down from 92.8% in mid-2022. But still, 88.5% of homeowners have a rate that's locked in below 6%. That is up from uh, about 45% of homeowners in 2013. And so you have this uh, this effect of increasing wages, increasing 401k balances, money market rates that are paying you income. If you have $100,000, you're getting $5,000 a year of income. Uh, I, I see a, a vibe expansion because people just feel like they have uh, more money now. Uh, and they feel like inflation's at least under control. Now, the politics of the situations say that we're, um, you know, what depends on what side of the aisle that you're on, you're either, um, you know, uh, very concerned about inflation and recession, or you're, uh, you're experiencing a, a vibe expansion. Um, but, but the data is pretty clear that um, those that have debt have debt fixed at low rates, at the same time are experiencing expansion of, you know, values of 401ks or other investments, plus are receiving income uh, from interest-bearing securities. Right. And as far as the vibe session is concerned, going back from to 2021, prices are about 25% higher than what they were at that point in time. So it's inflation was brutal over that period of time. But if you look at it over the last 12 months, this is from Truflation. Truflation says that this is a real-time indicator of inflation, basically. We've talked about it in the past. But Truflation says that over the last 12 months, inflation is at right around 2%. So you're right. Wages are, are up. People that have locked in these home mortgages pre, especially if you're looking at, you talked about uh, sub-6%, 88% of people have sub-6% mortgages. But a huge percentage of people have sub-4%, sub-3%. I'm one of the people that has a 2.65% mortgage. And so my particular, in my particular case, my mortgage is way less than what my rent would be if I had to go rent a place on the market or whatever. And so there's a huge segment yeah, of the population. I mean, this, that, is, this is that same data. It's, uh, it's almost 60% of borrowers, mortgage holders are, uh, are at uh, 4% or less, about 20% are below 3%. Um, so, I mean, and then, uh, this is what, uh, where, who says this, which I think is really interesting. Oh, it's Lizanne Saunders again, talking about business owners. She says small, small businesses on average facing higher interest rates on short-term loans, blue, this is a chart, but only 5% are saying financial interest rates are their single most important problem. Orange, uh, most important is still inflation white. Well, meaning that's the color of the, of the line on the chart. Um, why is that? Because businesses did the same exact thing. They they locked in uh, they locked in debt for an extended period of time at at low interest rates during twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two. Why didn't we have a recession last year? Uh, because interest rates really didn't have an impact on uh, a majority of borrowers. It definitely impacted certain sectors of the economy. I think if you're in the real estate business, 
if you're a realtor, uh, you definitely felt like last year was a recession. If you're in a, the development business where you had a floating rate loan that you had to go re- refinance, you definitely felt like last year was a recession. Um, but you know, there's always a recession somewhere in the economy. I think there's just broadly speaking, uh, in the consumer felt pretty good last year as inflation came down, but all of their, uh, you know, all the income stayed steady or increased and the values of their portfolios increased. Right. So now more people have more money in their pockets because of these, uh, by virtue of the fact that their wages are higher, they're, they've locked in this debt and all of a sudden prices are stabilizing over the last 12 months. And so people are feeling really good and that's reflecting in the data. Um, so things are looking really positive. Um, things are not looking so positive on the electric car front over the short term. You, you and I have talked about this at, at, um, at long length, that this is a trend that we foresee over the next 25, 50 years or whatever, that's going to be something that's commonplace, but there's a lot of sort of uh, bumps in the road along the way, no pun intended for these sort of vehicles. Um, in the, this past, this past couple of weeks, the country has experienced this Arctic blast and there's been stories about how, um, Tesla owners basically have been really struggling charging their vehicles up north. Um, if you've ever rented or owned a electric vehicle, the battery life goes down precipitously in cold weather. It also takes forever to charge as well too. Um, and then also, well, you have, you have an EV was that what you, and it's been freezing here in new Orleans. Did you have any issues charging? I had a, well, I have a hybrid. So oh, I haven't had okay. any issues. I have a uh, a Ford F one fifty hybrid. So I just uh, I I put gasoline in it. And the cool thing about that is is that it's got an extended tank and it's got great uh, uh, gas mileage as well too. But the the Ford F one fifty hybrids, there was actually an article on that that you po- you posted to the notes. But how they're cutting their um, their production down significantly because there's the, there's just a lack of demand. Um, it just, it's, it really, it's going to be like we, like we had talked about, it's, it's going to be, it's an inevitability that electric vehicles, um, become ubiquitous, but it's just going to be a long transition to, to that state, that point in time, just because of these sorts of issues that people are facing. Um, imagine being in, you know, the North or whatever, and having a Tesla during this period has got to be a pain basically. I think, I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a market driven change that people make. Like right now I, I was looking at this. You can go, first of all, you get an EV tax credit. You used to, for high income earners, you used to be priced out of that tax credit because it phases off, mm-hmm. phases out at certain income levels. Now the new, the new tax law is that you can put that back to the dealer. You can, you can give the dealer that credit and the, the dealer will then reduce the value of your purchase by uh, the amount of the credit received. So right now there's a $7,500 EV tax credit and these electric vehicles, those that qualify for uh, these tax credits are extremely cheap compared to the, the uh, internal combustion engine counterpart. So like F-150, you know, gas engine versus F-150 electric, there's a major disparity between the price because nobody wants these electric vehicles. Um, and so I think it would just be driven by people making a, a, a calculated decision on just co- the cost difference between the two. And if these EVs are just che- simply cheaper and you're getting uh, credits, so you're getting subsidized to buy them, I think that's going to be a major driver of the transition from gas to electric. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, Hertz, we talked about this last week, but Hertz is reducing their their electric vehicle stock by like a third percent, the rental car agency. And you can get the, the a, part, a partial tax credit on buying a used electric vehicle as well, too. 
some of these things are trading in like the sub $20,000 range right now. So at a certain point, it gets to be the economics make it justifiable for people that um, are looking for a, uh, a reasonable, you know, family car or whatever, but there's a lot of disadvantages, obviously, but over time they're going to continue to get more efficient. Um, and it's real. it's going to be a global phenomenon. The other, as it relates to the global side of the equation, uh, electric, uh, grids, if I have to have to develop, obviously too, they're not everywhere is like the United States or Europe or whatever that has like a, a real reliable electric grid, but like China is investing very heavy, heavily in the electric vehicle market. Uh, there's actually, on China, there's a couple of uh, interesting things I want to talk about. There, I listened to a podcast this past week about the economic ramifications if China and tr- China tried to forcefully reunite with Taiwan, which it, I think is going to be a story of the next decade or so. So, anyone who's interested in, in, in learning more about that particular topic, I'd refer that I'd refer you to the Odd Lots episode that talks about the economic dynamics. But in sum, the two individuals that were interviewed were economic economists from Bloomberg. And they said that they don't foresee there being any sort of actual invasion of, of Taiwan unless they they cross some delineated red lines. But that China w- would basically have their hand forced because it would be such a difficult affair. Um, I, I, yeah, and I thought um, that was interesting about that, and that the Taiwan China issue has been brought up um, pretty uh, in the media over the last year or two, um, and you know potential uh, you know, the Russia Ukraine invasion was. Um, you know, President Xi's uh, look into how the world re- would react to a, a similar situation in Taiwan. That was at least the the foreshadow. And uh, the interviewer um, for that Odd Lots podcast said she wrote her dissertation for her doctorate on the uh, China-Taiwan uh, potential invasion in like 2005. Um, and so this is something that the economists were talking about on that podcast that comes up every, you know, three to five years that there's a, you know, heightened risk of a, uh, a war between China and Taiwan. And, uh, that's nothing new. So if you're reading about it now, it's been basically a, a story since, um, you know, since basically the revolution in China when, um, when, uh, the, the opposing Shanghai party, check. yeah, uh, uh defected to taiwan with his followers and so um anyway so i would that, say that that's that's because an interesting question like well so this is the last 10 years u.s tech stocks over the last 10 years are up 509 percent chinese tech stocks on the other hand are down 11 percent. so u.s 510 percent versus down 10 percent on chinese tech stocks so the question is like well if if the, the is the, is it already priced in to the extent? I guess it's not priced in because obviously Taiwan Semiconductor wouldn't be tra- trading at what it is or whatever if there was that was really priced in. And there's probably all kinds of economic calamity that would result. But what happens if this doesn't happen and maybe the, there's a return to the status quo where there's some diplomatic uh, rapport um, that doesn't is that, that there isn't the sort of like saber over the the head of the of the Taiwanese. I, I would say that my my stance on this is is try to steer clear of investment in a, a communist dictatorship. And we had Perth Toll on the podcast about a year ago talking about uh, how she constructed an ETF called the Freedom ETF, FRDM. It's actually grown pretty dramatically. I think there's close to a billion dollars, $708 million in this ETF. But Yeah, it was like $300 million when she came on uh, the Lanyard podcast yeah, and so. since then. <laughs> we haven't we haven't we haven't received any sort of uh, 
um, kickback from from Perth for uh, for promoting her ETF, but we probably should. Um, anyway, so the the idea here is that it weights countries uh, by uh, the Cato index as to their economic freedom, and and then it it uh, filters that down to emerging markets only. Doesn't hold any uh, Chinese uh, or Russian equities or Saudi in the fund. Or or, yeah, and uh, and since since its inception, it's really you know, been in the top quartile amongst all ETFs and or amongst all funds in emerging markets, which leads me to the conclusion that um, you know it's just really hard to make any sort of directional bet from an from an investment perspective on countries where um, you know the the state can basically assume control of a company and there's no property rights. Um, well, so, to that point, to that point, Doug, if you look at the like. The, we we use as an educational tool the BlackRock's BlackRock capital market assumptions, um, and if you if you're interested in checking it out, just Google BlackRock BlackRock CMA or BlackRock capital market assumptions, and basically BlackRock's economists provide a um, an estimate of what they think the returns are going to be in various asset classes over different time periods. And to your point about the uncertainty in China, they give China the basically the widest variance of any sort of um, expected returns over any time period, meaning they they think that China's got a their average return should be about ten percent over the next uh, five years, for example. But they think it could be up to um, uh, close to like twenty five percent annualized returns or or negative twenty five percent annualized returns, basically. So they think that there's it's a, just a huge unknown because they could be in a situation where there is some return to moderation. Um, or there is a situation where they're, they attack Taiwan and you know they get excluded from capital markets like Russian stocks or whatever. Yeah, and I would say that there's no real need to take that sort of uh, directional bet. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's, especially if you have no you have no insight into Xi's uh, you know, mind and what he's and thinking. We, and nobody does. Like yeah. there, there was even an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago about how, like ten or fifteen years ago, China basically eradicated our entire. Um, spy contingent, um, and we have the CIA has had a difficulty reestablishing that. So they don't really know what's happening. Versus, like for example, in Russia, we were able to essentially call Putin out um, like a couple of weeks before invading Ukraine because we our our uh, intelligence unit knew that we were going to uh, or knew that he was going to attack Ukraine. We have basically very little insight. So nobody has any insight, basically, into Xi's thinking. Um, except for the, the the people that are really close to him, and and the U.S. intelligence agencies don't even have any insight. So yeah, it's and really the, like and a, the market the market is not too um, excited about uh, you know, the Chinese equities. This is JD.com, which is uh, dubbed the Amazon of China. Uh, this is from uh, Trevor Scott, who runs Tidefall Capital. He, he just he just posted this. He says JD now trading for less than its cash. I know you think it's overvalued. It trades at two point eight times. EBITDA. So, um, that is crazy. Yeah. So that the, the question is, what is the actual true accounting, uh, of that particular company? And so, and that, and that's really what the risk is. You don't really know, um, that the data that you're getting, uh, on these companies is actually, um, you know, truthful. And how do you make, how do you make an investment based upon that? And not only that, what's the, what's the actual like ramifications or risk associated with the government just shutting any particular industry down. And that's happened multiple times in China. Like for example, most one of the biggest companies in China is Tencent, and they have a video game unit. And then the government recently had a situation where 
they limited uh, on, on from a from a macro governmental standpoint children's usage of uh, video games for to a certain number of hours every week. So the price of Tencent went down. Um, they also the government also in China during COVID uh, basically punished or prohibited virtual learning companies from making money. Um, and so all, there's a bunch of virtual learning stocks in China that like went down 70% or whatever. So anything can happen in these particular um, uh, communists or autocratic regimes that, that either the accounting's messed up or the government makes a, a change in uh, policy that, that unilaterally that can kill a business immediately. So it's really difficult to make that particular bet, and that's going to happen. That's there's a, and that's why this this particular ETF exists, um, Freedom ETF, because and those you, you you mitigate those risks if you invest in places that that don't have uh, autocratic regimes. Yeah, um, I want to end with uh, I think I thought Urian Timmer, who's the Fidelity chief economist or chief strategist, whatever his title is, uh, had a couple of good threads this week. That uh, one of them I want to I want to read. Um, because I thought it was really good and we can end with this and it just goes to um, just the regime change that we've had over the last really three months as the Fed has pivoted from tightening to easing or restrictive to accommodative and what that really means. Um, this is uh, this is Urian and, and then we'll end with this. He says, what we know, the Fed has gone from a tightening bias to an easing bias Following the December FOMC meeting, it's clear that the Fed has adopted an easing bias towards monetary policy with the core PC inflation rate easing from its peak of 5.6% to 3.2%. This is the correct approach. Monetary policy is a pendulum that swings from 200 to 300 basis points below the neutral rate, or R star. And neutral rate is essentially uh, no real uh, interest rate. So if it's if your if your Fed policy is at five percent and inflation's at five percent, then you're neutral. If your Fed policy's at five uh, percent and inflation's at three percent, then you're a three percent. Uh, you know they call it R star or neutral rate. Um, anyway, or two percent R star or neutral rate. So anyway, monetary policy is a pendulum that swings from two to three percent below neutral to two to three percent above during tightening cycles. We are there, and now both inflation and economic growth are softening with inflation around 3 to 3.5%, and the real rate or neutral rate uh, at around 1.1%. Um, to get to neutral, uh, he, the, the Fed would be in the ballpark of 4 to 4.5%. It's at 5.25% to 5.5% right now. Essentially, what he's saying is that the Federal Reserve, he expects to cut this year just to get back to that neutral rate anywhere from uh, 1 to 1.25%, which would be a 4 to 5 rate hike. We talked about it at the beginning of the year. The market was anticipating 6 to 7 rate hikes this year, which... Um, rate cuts. I mean, rate cuts. The yeah. idea here is that uh, the, the the Federal Reserve is likely to cut 4 to 5 times based upon Timmer. what Timmer's saying. The market anticipated 6 to 7 cuts. So all the volatility you're seeing in interest rates this year just a normalization of expectations according to Timmer and um, and don't get too enthusiastic about uh, you know trying to hit six to seven rate cuts this year and being bullish about interest rates coming down if you're in the real estate business uh, the likelihood is that they're going to be a little bit higher for longer yeah and and in closing I want to refer our uh, listeners to uh, the uh, spirit and JetBlue drama that's happening. What basically happened this past week was 
that a uh, federal judge blocked the, the plan merger or acquisition of Spirit by JetBlue. And as a result of that, there's the stock price of Spirit Airlines went down like 60% because there's concerns that Spirit is going to go bankrupt um, because they have a bunch of debt coming due and they have uh, a bunch of their planes out of out of service because they utilize Pratt & Whitney engines and there's a problem with Pratt & Whitney engines or whatever. But anyway, there's this is attracting a lot of, uh, of the traditional or, or not traditional, but like a lot of the, the COVID stock speculators, including Dave Portnoy, who is the president of Barstool Sports. And he was, uh, he, Dave Portnoy yesterday, this is pretty hilarious. Anybody that's interested in watching this and he's, he's chrono, he's chronic, chrono, using a chronology of, of, uh, what's happening, um, posting a chronology of what's happening on his Twitter account. But at, at 11 55 Eastern yesterday, Dave Portnoy announced that he bought, um, uh, Spirit Airlines stock, um, and then at the exact minute, uh, Spirit Airlines announced that they were potentially restructuring, uh, meaning going bankrupt, and and his investment fell by twenty five percent. The Spirit Airlines stock ended up uh, positive on the day, but it's been real. It's the volume is like basically a hundred times its normal, and so it's a little bit reminiscent of the whole GameStop era. Um, so a lot of interest. In it, if you're interested in following. That particular um, news story, look at uh, Portnoy's Twitter feed. But if you uh, guys have any questions or comments, um, please leave them on the show notes. Um, and please forward this to your friends and family. We're, we're uh, like I said, approaching 100, pod, 100 episodes recorded. Give us five stars, and we'll otherwise see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.